Well, let's jump back in. Um, Daniel and Lisa, I'm hoping you guys can help me out today because we're getting a little more into the kind of scientific area here than, than I mean, there's several times where I'm going, I'm writing off to the side, huh? Question mark or how? Question mark. Um, but let me, let me start with a couple of questions. I thought I'd start with something a little bit more foundational. Of course, we're talking about the question of evolution and the problem, the, the, in a certain to a certain degree, evolution presents problems. To a certain degree, it does not. Remember that evolution does not answer the question of origin. There's a big difference between diversity of biology and origin of life. Those are two totally separate conditions. Evolution presupposes that something exists, that it can evolve into something else. But obviously, the, 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 what evolution brings into the equation is that, well, we can have all of this. If you can just somehow assume that it's created, if you could just assume creation, which is what, frankly, I think atheists essentially have to do. If you can just assume creation, then we don't need you know, anything to account for the existence of, of, the, the, of, of, of any bi biological life. Humans are just like all biological life. We just give our. We have just evolved to the point uh, of self-awareness. We can give ourselves meaning and purpose. Ultimately, all those things are totally illusory. They only have meaning to ourselves. For example, we can give ourselves purpose. We can give our our, our own lives. Well, our life means something because we adopt dogs from the dog shelter. You know. But okay, great. But is that real meaning or purpose? On a purely evolutionary worldview, I would argue no. Um, you know, if, if we are just animals, then we just have the illusion of purpose or meaning. We don't have actual meaning or purpose. And so um, anyway, that's kind of a rant, I guess. But the, these are some of the problems that evolution can bring about is that, well, if we're, we're just like the rest of nature, then what makes us special? You know, and then like, well, when does the image of God, you know, in Genesis, it says we have the image of God. And then, you know, sin is passed down. You know, Adam is the federal head, as we say, of all of human. What does that mean? And how are these things passed down from generation to generation? When did the image of God come in? Um, how did that come about? And so, um, and then, well, if evolution is true, it, it's assumed that Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 really can't possibly be true. I mean, maybe by the time we get to Genesis 11 with Abraham, okay, maybe there was a historical guy named Abraham and he had, you know, he had a son and he had 12 sons. And okay, we can kind of have some historical narrative here picking up some steam. You know, we get to Moses. Oh, there's some evidence actually for Moses. Okay, I can buy that. But everything before that, ah, come on, that's just myth that gives an illusion of meaning in our lives, it explains things, that explanatory scope and power, all those sorts of things. But we know that it's not true, and then you have a seed of doubt about the authenticity of the Bible, the reliability of the Bible, maybe the fact that Christianity is just a system that is meant to deceive us. You know, the Bible, if the Bible lies about Santa Claus, wait a minute, you get the idea. If the Bible is untrue about this, well, maybe it's also untrue about that. And if it's untrue about that, it's probably not telling the truth about the resurrection either. So end up in the slippery slope. Doubt is cast. So you, obviously, I think we all know what a big deal evolution is. So we looked at a Christian defense of evolution in the first book. This book, again, by the way, I meant to send out the link. I've, I've not finished it, but I did listen to uh, quite a bit of Jim Tour's interview with Joshua Swamidas. It's on YouTube. If you just put in those two names, it'll come right up. It might be where it's about this book. And I meant to put that out in our weekly email so that y'all could follow along with that. Um, and uh, so 
anyway, but what Swamidas offers is an, an argument for evolution as being a biological reality and Adam and Eve being created from nothing, de novo, and being a historical pair about 6,000 years ago inside the garden. So you have people in the garden, you have people out of the garden. And, and so the questions, it, and, and eventually they interbreed, and so it, it explains everything. You know, you, 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 you can have the truth of evolution, and you can have the truth of the Bible. The Bible, the Bible doesn't say enough about the people outside the garden to disprove that theory. And there's nothing in science or biology or in the theory of evolution that disproves this possibility. Remember, this whole book is essentially a thought experiment. So when you have a thought experiment, the idea is that you need to present everything you can. You need to, you need to say, well, let's think of all the reasons that it might not be true, okay? Uh, and, and then, so then let's see if they stick. Let's see if they have legs. I used that phrase this week with my kids. Let's see if it has legs. They're like, my kids are like, what, what, what do you mean it has legs? So, it's funny how many idioms you speak in without even thinking about it. So yes, sir. Yes. Well, so he asked for a mark on his face. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we get, I think we'll get to that because this is science and eventually we'll get into kind of the biblical content. Um, but one of the things I wanted to do, and I've, I've not completed this obviously, but I wanted to think of all the reasons that this hypothesis can't be true. Now he wouldn't have published the book if there was like one that could stick obviously. So, but for example, um, if the genes prove that it's false, Okay, if the genetic information could prove that it's false, then the thought experiment falls apart. And we're back to evolution or Adam and Eve 6,000 years ago. First human pair, etc. Right? So do the genes prove it? Well, as we've already talked about, no, because genetic information is gone after 10 or 15 generations, right? So you don't you cannot trace your DNA to say a great, 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 great grandfather. Okay. It, it's too diluted at that point. Too many people were involved in your creation. It's too diluted. It's there somewhere, but it's essentially untraceable. So you can't use genetics to find some way back 6,000 years ago, one way or another to prove or disprove. So what we're talking about is not genetics, but genealogy, right? Um, so what about math? Okay, because that's where this kind of comes in. What does math have to do with anything? Well, what we'll talk about today is basically the idea that there could have been a single human pair as recently as 6,000 years ago, if you consider 0 BC or 1 BC as a starting point. Why 1 BC? Remember, 1 BC is when Jesus is born, and therefore, if Jesus is the new Adam, then everyone that is, that is living by that time would have to be genealogical ancestors of Adam and Eve for Jesus' work of sacrifice and resurrection to be effective, then everyone living at that time would have to be genealogical ancestors of Adam and Eve. There can't be people out here, right, for his death to be effective for them too. So, so the, the, there has to be a way of proving mathematically that everyone living at that time was a genealogical ancestor of one couple, of Adam and Eve. Okay? Yeah? Technically, wouldn't it be a Um, no, because 
concept of knowledge is that that's what we have in part of the world. Yeah, does he talk about Danny and Lisa? I hate to put you on the spot. I, I can't remember. I mean, I think that regarding the flood was the question. Would it really only have to do with Noah and his wife? But I mean, there are also his three sons. But I guess the idea is that, well, Adam and Eve precede them. So you might as well go back to them because whoever's on the boat is a descendant of Adam and Eve. So, right. um, yeah. So the I, first book didn't didn't address that at all. Does this one address the, the Noah component? Because I know we had this question. Right. Does this book address Noah? What do do y'all remember that? If I remember correctly, he, he does kind of say yep. that genetics, um, while, while it can't tell you a lot about like a particular person in the past, um, if, if it were true that the total population of humans had been reduced to some small group like that, uh, in the recent history, then that would be apparent in the in the genetics. Like it's not that you would be able to reconstruct Noah's DNA, but it would be obvious that there was a small group of people, um, and the genetics doesn't show that. So I think he kind of has to argue um, that the flood must have been a regional event, yeah. and that there were people who weren't affected by the flood. You know, there were other humans around the world. Um, I, I think that's, if I remember correctly, that's kind of where he has to go with this. Yeah, I was looking up Noah, lineage of, uh, page 138. Let me just jump to page 138 real fast and see if I highlighted anything. No. <laughs> I mean, I did, but it doesn't have to do with Noah. Um, it's at the bottom, like the last paragraph in Genesis. Yeah. It says, um, you know, just about, it talks about little is said about, you know, outside the garden, about how Adam's lineage occupies a different, a defined place in the Middle East. Um, no, so after the flood, Noah's visible lineage clusters around a tiny area around the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 10 and 11, the spread of Noah's children shows that Adam and Eve become the ancestors of at least some of the people in the areas within and surrounding the Middle East. So that's like his regional argument. Gotcha. Like there aren't any references to, to people anywhere else. Yeah. Which he ta he'll talk about. He talks about you know in the earth, like chapter four and five, maybe gotcha. six. Okay. So I'm trying to think what that means. Does that mean that? Because the the so that would mean that at the time of Noah, then if you assume a regional flood, that not everyone would have had the common ancestor of Adam and Eve yet, but they would have by zero BC or one, a one AD. Is that right? right. So yeah. I, it would take time for it to spread out. Okay. And that's the theological argument as well is that everyone who was a genealogical descendant of Adam needed to be killed except for Noah's family, you know, like that, that would maybe be the way to tie it back into the story in scripture. Oh, okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, Okay, well, let's, let's just, and I don't know that I want to spend a lot of time on it, but it's, it's, again, if you propose this kind of a thought experiment, you're going to have people that are going to say, well, wait a minute, like, these are all the reasons that can't be true. So that, what he's trying to do is basically present reasons that it can't be falsified. Okay, so it stands the test of falsification or not falsification. Um, so let me just try to read a couple of 
um, summary sentences about this, and, and, and um, Danny and Lisa might have more to say about it. He says, universal genealogical ancestors of everyone alive, this is the very first sentence of chapter five, arrive as recently as a few thousand years ago. We can now begin to assess our hypothesis. Could Adam and Eve, ancestors of us all, have lived in the Middle East as recently as 6,000 years ago? What are the ranges of times they could have lived? Already, it seems that as if this may not be as ridiculous a hypothesis as we first imagined. Um, and he goes on, he, he talks about the AD1 thing that we've already talked about. Um, and I want to get to that nature article. That's kind of where I'm trying to jump to. Um, he says, no, I don't want to read that. Here's one of those things where I have a question mark. Um, he talks about a paper that he wrote, which looks at this article in a 2004 uh, magazine, Nature magazine, which is a peer-reviewed article, et cetera. And in the year 2004, an article was written that argued that common ancestry actually could be as early as 700 years ago. But then they, I think they figured in some, some like uh, remote islands and, you know, inability of transport and things like that. So then they figured in some other things and it got back to 3,000 or even 4,000 years ago. So the problem of 6,000 years ago really shouldn't be a problem. Um, and he says this, I'm on page 58. Uh, he says, in this chapter, I choose the required descendants to be everyone alive at AD 1. For theological reasons, this seems to be the most recent date allowable, as I will explain in the next part of the book. Depending on when Adam and Eve are placed, it is possible that everyone descends from them long before AD 1. He goes into quite a bit of, um, you know, talks about migration rates, for example, and some math things, there are a number of complicated charts that are supposed to help, but I'm going, I'm not sure how to read that. Um, let me read a couple of more quotes, and then I'll be quiet, and Daniel and Lisa might be able to explain it better. He says that nearly IAP, oh my gosh, I can't remember what that is. It's a time, that I remember, sorry. Uh, identical ancestor point, identical ancestor point. He says, at nearly identical ancestor point, I'm uh, estimated at 6,000 years ago, all farmers in Mesopotamia who left a reasonable number of grandchildren would each be universal ancestors of everyone alive in AD 1. So again, he's talking about the math that is needed to, to kind of prove that point. And then a summary statement on page 62, he says, remember at 4,000 years, everyone in the Middle East that leaves ancestors is a universal ancestor. It does not take luck or miracles for Adam and Eve at this point to be ancestors of, of everyone. All right. So um, any, any thoughts on that? By the way, I listened to, um, I read, by the way, sorry, changing topics. I read the Gerald Schroeder article that Jim Tor mentioned in the video we watched last week. And um, on our podcast, I, I put more of what Jim Tor said on the podcast feed because the audio didn't come through on Zoom. I'm not sure if y'all could even hear that last week. But um, the, it's an interesting article. And it basically is the idea uh, that the universe looks old, but it could be young. 
And that's because of the way that time, that because time expands with space. So the bigger the universe, the more time. So the, the universe really does look 14 billion years old to us, but that's because space is, there's so much space and space and time are interconnected. But at the beginning of the universe, space was very small. It hadn't expanded yet. Um, and so time also would have felt different. It's, it, just watch the movie Interstellar. It explains all this. <laughs> um, you know, he's on that planet for an hour, but his daughter gets like 30 years older or something, you know? Um, I mean, that, that movie is about different theories of time, and it is about the theory of relativity. Uh, so kudos to Christopher Nolan for making an action movie about space-time, you know. Um, no, I've not seen Tenet yet, but I'm told it's quite good. Anyway, we'll do a Christopher Nolan movie debrief another day. Okay. Um, but I, I, it is a really interesting concept, and he uses some math to basically say if we know the expansion rate and if we know what that would do to time, when you run the numbers... And if you assume that Adam and Eve is created on the fifth, fifth and a half day of creation, right? Five and a half days. So it basically counts up the number of hours and expansion rates. He's like, actually, it comes out to 13.6 billion years. So it's kind of interesting. Um, so it, it, what, what, I, what I don't agree with, and this is my own personal view, is, is people who would say that the, that the earth looks old as a kind of way of deception or test or something, right? Like, you know, I, I, I don't understand the need for that because I don't think God is deceptive. And we talked about that last time. Something like that. Um, okay, but any, um, any thoughts on that? Uh, I'm in chapter five, Daniel. Did you all highlight anything? Is there something that we need to kind of be sure to drive the point home? Just since you mentioned the age, you know, the age of the earth and the deception, you know, like again, against that, I, he, he talks about that in the genome too, about how God hasn't deceived us that the evidence um, for evolution, you know, for evolution isn't there. It's just that that, that genetic information was lost long ago that um, like, does that make, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I just want to, because I yeah. never heard, I heard that a lot about, um, you know, the, for the actual like physical structure of the earth or, you know, rock, like, geological structures, but I hadn't heard that for like the genetic, you know, side too, that there's not deception there either, you know? Yeah. yeah. I like, I like that he mentioned that. Yeah. Daniel, did you have anything? Nope. Nope. Okay. I, and yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, Here's again, the, the, the main point of this article is to say, I'll read a summary on page 64. He says, estimates for the universal ancestors of all those alive at AD1 are not available. Estimates as we have seen are still possible. For Adam and Eve to be ancestors alive in AD1, they could have lived as recently as 6,000 years ago, and that date is a conservative estimate. It's also possible that Adam and Eve were situated more anciently at 8, 10, or 15,000 years ago, or whatever we might most make sense with other concerns in mind. Uh, in mind. But the, again, the the main question is, the hypothesis falls apart if it is not possible that, at, that anybody, okay, any two people could have been a universal ancestry of everyone alive at AD1, period. Okay? If, if that's not possible, then the thought experiment fails. If, if for some reason 
that it would have been 200,000 years ago where you finally get to two people who are universal ancestors of everyone alive at AD1, then that throws the story of Adam and Eve at a 6,000 or 10,000 year timetable into serious doubt. But that isn't what we find. We find common ancestor very, very recently. And so the hypothesis can sort of live on to fight another day. That, that's, kind of the, that's kind of the summary. It doesn't mean that it's true. It means that it's not disproven at this point. Um, and I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just speaking in, you know, this is how you have to talk when you talk about these sorts of thought, thought experiments. Um, the next chapter talks about isolation. And so this is kind of what I mentioned earlier, where you have uh, people groups that are, um, that are basically isolated. By the way, Donald Hackler sent me a link to an article recently, and I think it's in the Atlantic, and it's a long read, and it's a story about these bones that are found in like the mountains in the Himalayas, and nobody can figure out who they were because it's like a mass death, like all at once. And they're trying to figure out who they were, and that, and they're trying to do genealogical, you know, and research on them. And so it's a very similar to what we're doing. And um, it's interesting; they can't come to a conclusion. You have all these different theories about who they were and why they were there, and what their background was, and was it a religious ritual, or, you know, were they trading, or why were they taking that route, and, you know, all this sort of thing. So it's, it is interesting that you still have examples of, you know, we like to think that science gives us all the answers. Maybe that's the point. It doesn't. It doesn't. Um, scientists frequently disagree. Follow the science. Don't even get me started. Which ones? Which ones? Which ones? Okay. Um, so, um, he says this, for example, he says the most likely, I'm on page 66, uh, the most likely candidates might be the indigenous populations of Tasmania, that is to say, people who are totally isolated, you know. He says, if this population were isolated from 6,000 years ago until AD 1, would this be a problem? Well, first, if Adam and Eve lived before the population was isolated, it will not matter. For example, if Tasmania were totally isolated from 9,000 years ago onward, this would rule out a universal ancestor at 6,000 years ago, but not one more ancient than this. If Adam and Eve lived 10 or 12,000 years ago, there would be no reason to doubt that Tasmanians all descended from him by AD 1. Um, so that, that's an example of, of isolation, which he calls kind of the mythology. He says, even if a rare population is genetic, and I don't know that I understand this, so maybe Dan and Lucy can help on page, on page 67. He says, therefore, even if a rare population is gene genealogically isolated, we do not face an ultimate problem. At stake here is merely the difference between total universal ancestry and nearly universal ancestry, with a few populations undetectably left outside Adam and Eve's lineage. We should be open to see what the evidence tells us about rare isolated populations. Um, and one of the things he, he kind of mentions is that scientists um, actually disagree on some of this um, and, and what, the, what the answers are. Um, but he basically says, let me read a summary sentence. He says, even though human populations are fragmented and might be genetically isolated at times, the data demonstrates a pattern of pervasive intermixing everywhere. And so I think that one of the um, 
one of the arguments against common ancestry is, is isolated populations. And basically the summary is that they actually aren't as isolated as we think. And it actually gets into some interesting, um, in fact, this is the article about these, the, about these people who died in this like remote Himalayan mountain is that there's a kind of war being waged right now between sociologists and these genetic, I don't know what the word is, um, geneticists. <laughs> um, because sociologists, you know, I guess historians to anthropologists, I should say, you know, they want to look at the social reasons for things being the way they are. And geneticists say, well, the data all points to this. And so when you start looking at migration and being able to trace back human migration, apparently these two disciplines often uh, kind of duel it out. Like, for example, he says there are a lot of mixing events in history. For example, the Arab slave trade and the Mongol Empire. You know, so you have these people groups clashing with one another. And, um, you know, for example, the, uh, the Spanish flu, uh, World War I was one of the major reasons it spread because you had, in, you know, intercontinental travel in a way that you never had before. And so, uh, and, and so it kind of stops for a while and then it comes back, um, you know, for that reason. So anyway, so some of that is, some of that is interesting is that you can actually say, you can actually show, oh, well, when the Mongolian empire took over and all these Mongolians were having children with all these non-Mongolians, you can see, you know, what's going on in the, in the genetics because of that telescoping effect of genetic data. Uh, you can't link any two people to be father and son from that far away, but you can telescope and sort of see that data. Um, and he says this, does genetic isolation of a few rare populations demonstrate that these populations were ge genealogically isolated? Say again, there's a difference between genetics and ge genealogy. Okay. Let me read the question again. The answer is no, by the way. Does genetic isolation of a few rare populations demonstrate these populations were genealogically isolated? The answer is no. In other words, it might be the case that um, you, you don't see a genetic connection between people groups because they're isolated physically somewhere on earth. But that doesn't mean that they're not genealogically isolated. The genetic information just isn't there. Okay. And he gives some examples and a little bit of this is over my head, but any, any thoughts on that question, Daniel and Lisa, about the importance of, of isolation or yeah, I, I think you covered that well. I mean, he's just, he's just basically saying, he's trying to anticipate this argument against his, his idea. And um, I think he's basically saying that if you want to say that there's an isolated population, you need to prove that they were totally isolated. Oh, okay. Uh, because anything, anything, even the slightest bit less than total isolation would open the door to genealogical, you know, you could potentially have, you know, just a few people that made it there and they wouldn't be detectable in the genetics, but they would be there in the ancestry and it would satisfy the theological claim. Yeah. So I think he's kind of trying to shift the burden of proof on the people who are trying to make this argument. You know, you, uh, you have to be very thorough. But haven't they also found that even like on the Polynesian islands that are just in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, that they did travel, like there mm -hmm. are traces of voyages and, and I mean, she's asking about the Polynesian islands, for example, and is there evidence of travel? Um, so 
I was trying to think if it was in this book or if it was in that article I read. I'm kind of trying to, but they get into some really interesting questions actually about sort of what technologies would have been available and like, how did they get to Tasmania? And, you know, yeah, I mean, it's really kind of fascinating to think about because, um, I mean, even if it's a canoe, it, apparently they could travel. <laughs> I mean, Tom Hanks did it in Castaway, and he had nothing. I mean, I was gonna say that's what I learned from Moana too. So exactly, yeah. Mulan. Does that happen? Oh, Moana. Oh, yes, that's right. The Rock. Uh, yes, he, he's he does a good job in that. Um, what's that? Yes. <laughs> Is that a movie? Yeah. Amanda, why don't you go ahead? The Easter Islands come up. I, I should have researched that. I'm guessing they're remote islands. Yeah, they're remote islands. There's a popular go to like, oh, how did you get there? Ah, okay. But the point is that by the time the people had the ability to, you know, build that technology to get from wherever they were, that they were all together in one spot, that they would have had a, I think the theory is that they would have had a common ancestor. So. Okay, that's a question for Lisa, for sure. So are we in the infancy of DNA um, research and could eventually the, the, the hope of the, you know, genetics get us back? You know, like, like we said right now, this is an important illustration that he uses. He says DNA is a, is a streetlight and a telescope. So what DNA tells us is something very immediate. It shines a light right here, like who your you know, third and fourth cousins are. It'll tell you that. Beyond that, it won't tell you very much. Um, but it's also a telescope because there's genetic information there, genomic information in there that tells you about sort of humanity. It doesn't say the way that we're related to Charlemagne per se, uh, but it, tell, it could tell you about like human migration, for example. There, there's enough genetic information to say, well, this is a Mongolian people and this is a, I don't know, whatever we have, Caucasian people. And oh, look, they, they interbred around 1400 years ago or something. But will, is it possible that with like technology or something, the DNA, Lisa, could tell us more? Could they map things out more specifically? No, I, I don't think so in terms of what's already been lost, like what's in the past. Now, like starting kind of in our generation, you know, if everyone has their genome sequenced by 23andMe, right? And we have all those um, genealogical ancestry websites, maybe now like in the future, we'll have a, we'll have a complete record, you know, of, of that. But, um, I, the but, but it would still be limited, I think, as to how, how far back it would go, right? Like say 23andMe, right. let's say everyone did 23andMe, Okay, then like the point is that it could, uh, I mean, like, again, when we did it, it it'll say, Amanda, you share 4.3765% DNA with this person. 
they're your first cousin once removed. Whatever that means. I think it means second cousin, but I have no clue anymore. Um, so, um, but there comes a point where like once that number gets below 1%, right, which would be the case with your great-great-grandfather, for example, like there's just, there, it, no technology can change the fact that you only have a small percentage of their DNA. So let's say 23andMe can tell you that you share 0.5% of DNA with somebody or 0.1% of DNA with somebody because it, you know, it's exponentially, it gets exponentially weaker and weaker. In fact, I guess the further you go back, it, it gets exponentially weaker still, right? So like if you have 1% of DNA at your great-great-grandfather, then I think that would become divided by like 16 or something because at that point you have 16 grandparents or something and then, and then you'd have 32. Then you have 64. So I think the way the math works, unless I'm wrong, it doesn't have every time. It would actually get weaker and weaker. It's like, I might be wrong. Lisa would have to answer. Uh, that. No, that's right. Yeah, it gets diluted out. Daniel made the joke that it, it's like in movies when they're analyzing a photo and they just say enhance, enhance, enhance. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they're able to, to kind of get, get the piece of information they need. You can't do that with, like, it doesn't work in reality and you can't do that with, the genomes either yeah you can't get that license plate number off of the you know the toll tag <laughs> yeah. thing uh like there's not enough pixels there so all, all you would do is make a, a pixel bigger you wouldn't actually get the number off yeah <laughs> that's a good point so i don't so i think the point is that technology can't even if it was so good eventually the number would just get smaller and smaller so like so there'd be there you just you lose you know you'd be point zero 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 one related to somebody but at that point you'd be related to everybody at, at, at some level you know right it's not that we don't have the technology right now and we will later we just don't have that information we don't have the information yeah um well we're, we're out of time so this would be a good place to stop um we didn't get very far um so maybe i'll try to do a better job of trying to summarize some things again the, the main point of the book is to suggest, and I think this is something that we should think about, is to suggest that you can have that Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 can be true and human evolution could have taken place. He's presenting the, the he's presenting the possibility that you don't have to choose. The question is, I think, what is most important to us in our faith life? dealing with these stories. For me, unequivocally, there's nothing that even comes close to these two that I can think of. It's what does it mean to be made in the image of God? How is that transferred? When is that given? Um, and how are we affected by the fall? And how is that, how does that come into the world? And how is that effective? You know, you get into this whole thing with like Augustine and, you know, original sin. It's passed down essentially through the sex act. And so that's kind of why you have this. This is a very bad summary of this, but, you know, that's why sex ends up as, you know, you know, that's why you have chastity permitted, you know, you know, encouraged among priests and, you know, celibacy and the desert fathers and all this kind of stuff. I think that the idea was, you know, sex itself becomes a bad thing because that is how original sin is transmitted. It's, it's, they, they didn't have the language for it, but they basically say it's genetic, all right, it's genetic. And I would say it's genealogical if you allow that distinction. But um, 
so so those are the two main reasons that I think you you sort of that Adam and Eve are very helpful um, to to just put it very mildly um, because if you if you lose that if you lose Adam and Eve I do think it opens the door to um, to not being able to give a certain answer to those questions and I think it could it could be very problematic and I think a lot of the Christian worldview the kind of claims that we make on very current issues of racism you want to know the best answer to racism it's it's these arguments right here universal ancestry common descent very recently within the last few thousand years we really aren't different you know um, so if you want to argue against slavery or if you want to argue against BLM <laughs> um, you, you've got you've got the biblical data to, to do so um, against distinctions in races. Um, anyway, so no one gets to take advantage of, of sort of genealogical or genetic information for their own pet causes. Um, and then something like, well, when does human life begin? When does it have value? Well, if you just if you get rid of these arguments. Adam and Eve totally, I think you lose power. So this stuff has very, you know, real recent current ramifications. But um, any any last thoughts on today's lesson, Daniel and Lisa? We'll pick it back up, remember, in two weeks. Craig's teaching ne next week, but he won't be on Zoom. But any last thoughts for today? No, I think everyone will find the next, you know, rest, the rest of the book, the next couple chapters really interesting. This middle part of the book was really just a lit review, a literature review of him showing that, you know, what, what's been done already. And like you said, explaining some of the, the math, the, the science behind it. So the next chapter will be. Well, I'll, I'll definitely try to move us faster. I think we've laid enough groundwork so we can, I mean, anyway, it's, it's over my head too, but let's pray because we're out of time. Anyway. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for each day. We give you thanks for creating us in your image. Might we live into the fullness of what that means uh, every day. Pray, we pray a blessing on uh, our worship that we have now and every week in this Christmas week as well. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.